Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Leslie Wong, who's the author of the new blog post, Why It's So Hard to Turn Your Dissertation into a Book, and she'll join us today to talk about writing blocks. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wong. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. I am so glad you're here and we get to talk about why it is so hard to turn a dissertation into a book and I'm sure other things you're going to share with us about why we get stuck. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a full-time book writing coach for scholarly authors um, and I was an academic for a very long time. So I'm trained as a sociologist and I spent... um, over 10 years on the tenure track. I was an associate professor at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, And then I decided to leave the academy at the end of last summer, so summer 2022, and go full-time into the coaching work. So I'm also trained as a life coach, which I did um, around pre-pandemic when I was having some I guess, my own sorts of professional crises around where I was going to go next. Um, And that was around the time that I was going up for tenure. Um, So I went down the coaching path, and I also pursued the academic thing at the same time. I published a couple of sole-authored scholarly books. And along the way, um, as I continued to coach um, women academics in particular around their careers and around their writing, that I just really resonated with the writing side of things. And so I bring life coaching tools to writing coaching. Not surprisingly, on a podcast called The Academic Life, we are curious about what led you into an academic life before you exited it. So can you think back to when you were looking ahead at college and even grad school? Did you know what you wanted to do? How did that path work for you? That's a great question. I think we don't look back quite enough. Um, I think as a high schooler, I did not know what I was going to do as um, an undergraduate, I also didn't know, and it probably wasn't until my junior year, I did a study abroad um, for a year in Beijing, China, and I started getting interested in cultural differences between China and the United States. And this was in the mid-90s, so you know China hadn't fully opened up to the rest of the world yet. And I decided to start researching once I got back, and so I did an honors thesis um, on why... Americans were adopting children from China. It was something that I didn't know much about, and I was just curious. And then over time came to realize that research really kind of lit me up in new and different kinds of ways. And I enjoyed that process of discovery and learning and even of the writing and presenting. Um, So towards the end of my undergraduate years, it became clear that a PhD in sociology was something that it would make sense for me to pursue. Um, But between... Uh, graduating from college and starting grad school, I spent two years in Japan on the JET program where I taught English for a couple of years, which was a good immersive cultural experience before I started graduate school. And at some point in graduate school, did you decide you were going to be a professor and get yourself on a tenure track career? Yeah, it was a really conscious decision that I made. Um, And, you know, when I was two years into my graduate program, I almost left because I was getting very frustrated with feeling like I was doing all of this work 
and no one was going to benefit from it in any way. Um, and that I was writing these long papers and investing hundreds of hours into research that wasn't necessarily going to go anywhere because I wasn't publishing. I didn't know how to publish yet. Um, I also wasn't teaching yet. And so I, I did definitely have a crisis of faith around it. I talked to my advisor, um, who was super generous and kind always, and he put me in touch with another mentor who basically said, why don't you just wait and see um, after you've started teaching? That's like the applied part of sociology. So wait and see. And that's kind of the approach that I took. And then after I was like three or four years in, it just kind of was like, okay, now I'm on this path. And I was also in a program where pretty much everyone was in that, you know, headspace of trying to become, um, trying to get like a tenure track position um, at a research one institution if possible. And so I think, you know, you're very influenced by your peers as well. And by the sort of nature of the program, uh, which was, you know, a top program that was used to turning out a lot of professors. So Potentially, if I had been in a different kind of program where more people left, or nowadays I know a lot of people get a PhD without the intention of becoming a professor, I may have gone a different path. But that's um, that's what I decided to do in the early 2000s. It sounds like it was a path that had its own sort of internal momentum, and and you went with it. But then during the pandemic, you did a lot of reckoning and reconsidering. Yeah, I think, you know... My um, experiences are in some ways like very specific to me and in other ways I think pretty common amongst folks who have, you know, dedicated so much of their lives to one particular professional path um, and one that takes you away from your family and community oftentimes. And so I definitely spent a number of years moving to different places, starting my life over multiple times. Um, before landing in Boston, where I did have a community, and I was very gratified to have the job that I got, and came to realize that the job was not everything that it was cracked up to be. Um, the institution was not running in ways that sort of fostered um, people's growth in in the ways that I would want as an individual um, and a professional. And so I think I had this disenchantment that sort of arose because I really bought into the idea of there being a dream job, that there was some job that would really be that um, that solution for all of my life's problems that would fulfill me in all of these ways and would make all the sacrifice feel worth it. And I've come to believe that there's really no such thing as a dream job. I mean, jobs are what you make of them and jobs are what they are. And um, and I think I had to go through all of that to to recognize that I didn't really want my job to be so defining of every aspect of my life. And then the pandemic really solidified that because I gave birth to my son uh, February 2020. So the world shut down. We were cut off from everything, as everyone else was too. I also happened to be on sabbatical at that time. And so it gave me this alternative space to be in that had nothing to do with work and allowed me to kind of dream about other paths. So I think that was a very um, generative period for me, even though we were super isolated. It sounds like at that point, you had been fairly continuously in school or teaching at schools since you were very small. <laughs> I mean, you know, relatively. I started grad school when I was 24. But that break in between, it sounds like you were part of an education program. 
Um, oh yeah, I was teaching English. Yeah, you're right. So yeah. No, I you're right. I was in schools. Um, in school in some capacity. And I think, um, and even like training as a life coach, that was still a cohort. We were still doing curriculum. Like all of that was was familiar as well. So my sabbatical was the first time I wasn't attached to an institution or um, students or responsibilities of an academic nature. And it's in that space that you realize you're going to start your, your writing coaching business. And in 2022, you released an article called Why It's So Hard to Turn Your Dissertation into a Book, which was born out of a faculty workshop that you had given about transforming the dissertation into a book. But what seems to um, underlie the article is that this needed to be said because it wasn't just coming up at this uh faculty workshop. It just is something that comes up and up and up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially when I first started book coaching, I would say the majority of my clients were in this situation of transforming dissertations into books. And they felt exactly how I did when I was a first time author, which was like, what am I doing? What's the difference between a book and a dissertation? Why am I not doing this faster? Look at everybody else around me who's just like speeding right through it. And what's wrong with me? (laughs) And so I decided to write this piece because, um, because it's not just this, I don't think there's a, a, a natural you know, intuitive transformation you go through just because you have your PhD now. Um, and so, you know, a lot of folks that I'm working with, um, they go from being a grad student all of a sudden to be a ten- to being a tenure track professor where they have prestige and all these professional expectations on them and they still feel like they always did before. And so I wanted to write about how there's sort of this legacy and potential trauma of grad school that people bring with them, um, especially around their writing and around their research. And there's certain negative ideas that they can kind of um, pick up along the way through that socialization process we all go through in grad school, which for some folks sounds very much like a hazing process, um, depending on how supportive their, their mentors are or not. And I wanted to write about the emotional side of writing and of doing something as big as a book when you've already spent maybe like a decade on this topic and you're not excited about it anymore. And um, maybe you wrote it in a rush in three months because you got a job and it's not what you wanted it to be. And then you have to keep going back to it and back to it and back to it. And then a lot of times, you know, people get pretty critical, harsh feedback and they internalize that too. So I was really trying to think about what are some ways we can acknowledge the emotional aspects of something like a dissertation and then try to process them so that people can move forward with their books? Have you sort of collected the basic stories of what the most common traumas are that people leave grad school with? I know you want to protect um, the privacy of people who've shared their stories with you, but are there some generalizations you can make based on what you know now? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with mentors that are not supportive um, and the general nature of academia that is set up so that we are meant to compare our performance to one another. So, so for folks who didn't have supportive mentors, um, And by supportive, I mean like folks whose feedback was helpful 
right? Rather than harmful. Um, it sounds to me as a coach, like I hear a lot of stories about um, people whose advisors seem to project a lot of their own insecurities or dissatisfactions about their own lives or careers or writing onto their students um, or see their student see their students as extensions of themselves. And so, you know, there can be a real lack of boundaries there too. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, for folks who are not super self-aware, they have a very massive, almost parent-like um, influence over their students who are so impressionable. And I think the thing that stands out to me about my eight years in grad school was how infantilizing it was. And so even though I was 31 years old and everyone around me um, who was not an academic was moving on with their lives and having kids and buying houses, I was still waiting in hallways for office hours and you know, my, my status didn't change. And so I think that, you know, luckily I had really great supportive mentors who always gave helpful feedback. But if I was in a position where, um, I felt like I had to be defensive and on guard, I probably wouldn't have gone all the way through my program. And so I do think that's one of the main things is that, you know, people, like I said before, they internalize some really negative messaging about their writing, which tends to be connected to like people's own sense of selves because academics identify so personally with their work. Um, and then the other part of it, like I said, is, you know, always comparing, always, you know, keeping tabs on other people, usually to our own detriment. And I think that that's something that's kind of a universal, um, at least in capitalist societies. Right. But, you know, I think especially in academia where like resources can be very scarce so when someone gets a fellowship or an award or a job, it feels to everybody else like they're not going to get one. And that definitely um, bleeds into publication and this idea of not working fast enough, um, not feeling proficient enough, not feeling like um, you have like anything unique or interesting to say. And that comes up a lot with my clients. I would say especially... Um, folks who are from marginalized backgrounds, so women of color, first-generation students, um, immigrants or children of immigrants often come uh, to academia feeling like they they have to sort of prove that they can, that the knowledge that they have and the skills that they have are worthy of other people's attention as opposed to they already have all of this knowledge. They have, they're absolutely worthy of um you know, of the position that they're at. And so I, as a coach, have to sort of work with them to recognize, like, this is not about just trying to conform to sort of mainstream academic standards of achievement. This is about bringing your own, your own self, your own intuition, your own ancestral knowledge, your own cultural background, your own specific voice into the conversation, because that, that's the thing that's important. Um, but it's very, very hard to do because as a grad student, you're never, as far as I can recall for myself and for everyone I work with, people aren't encouraged to do that because that would really be rocking the boat. In the article, you tell us that we need to let go of our former self and step into our new identity as a true expert. It sounds like that line comes from what you were directly describing a few moments ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, like there's no actual 
internal transformation that happens for people just because now you have PhD in hand. But it's such a massive um, external transformation, right? So it's like now you're a doctor. And especially if you've gotten like a coveted tenure track position, it's like your skill set has been um, validated externally in all of these different ways than when you were a grad student. And so the stakes can feel a lot higher for folks, I would say, when they're writing their book than when they were writing their dissertation. So as stressful as the dissertation is, it's still only going to be read by a very small number of people. You're writing it for your committee. Um, You know who they are, right? You know they're giving you feedback throughout. And then a book, people oftentimes, um, they try to do the whole thing by themselves and they're just like, I still feel like that grad student, but I no longer can get all this feedback from my advisor. And, you know, how do I do this? And um, who am I to be saying this stuff? And I think that's, you know, this is where imposter syndrome can really rear its ugly head. And so I always tell my clients that writing a book, especially a first book, a sole authored first book, I should say, is like the lightning rod for any potential insecurity you might have as a writer, as a researcher, and as a person. Because it's the first time you are creating something for general consumption. And it's the first time you were, are going to be putting yourself out there um, and you know, risking visibility and putting your ideas out for potential critique and judgment. And so this is where a lot of people shut down because um, they don't want that, right? They, like, it's a very uncomfortable experience to feel like, oh my gosh, what are my critics going to think? How are people going to review this? Um, and it always circles back to like, who am I to be saying this stuff? Like, do I really have what it takes to do this? Maybe I'm in the wrong profession. Like there's a huge um, spiral, effect that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have experienced before that comes from, you know, really doing something brand new where there's no clear guidelines. And so for me, becoming a coach um, specifically focused on helping people do scholarly books came from my own experience of that, where I was just spiraling. I felt like for years and I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, other people were doing it better than me. Uh, I felt like everything in my in my career was riding on this, even though it really wasn't. Um, it felt like I was trying to prove all of these things to my discipline. Um, it just felt overwhelming. And I also put all the rest of my life on hold while I was trying to get it done. And so a lot of how I coach comes from thinking about what I would have benefited from when I was an assistant professor who just felt like I had no idea where I could get any help and not even sure what kind of help I even needed, but just wanted to feel better. So that's essentially where all of this came from. In the article, you encourage people who are wanting to turn their dissertation into a book to make a new start. And you have several questions that you encourage people to reflect on that you hope will help them start to let go of the traumas of grad school that can negatively impact the book writing process. The first question is, how has critical feedback you received on your dissertation influenced how you currently think about yourself as a writer? 
we've touched on so far how it affects how you see yourself as a scholar, as a student, as a thinker, and whether or not you feel you've earned your status or proved yourself. Seeing ourselves as a writer is a is another step on the journey. It's it's another identity to carve out. And that can be a difficult thing because prior to that, our writing, as you've said, was for assignments. And so we didn't really claim ourselves as writers. If you write a paper, if you write a, a conference paper, if you write a chapter for your dissertation, you don't claim yourself as a writer. This is the step where you claim yourself as a writer. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. And this is also the reason why most people don't write books, because it requires you to develop a voice, like a distinct author's voice that is ideally different from the voice you would use when writing articles or other kinds of scholarly writing. Um, and I think that this is really a challenge for folks, especially, you know, the ones that I mentioned before, like women of color, first-gen college students, because people have spent so many years trying to perfect an academic ease sort of writing style, where um, they have come to see accessible, non-jargony writing as problematic. And then when it comes to writing a book, you do not want an inaccessible, jargon-filled book. Because you know what? It's not going to sell. Like undergrads don't want to read that. Like a general interested reader is going to be excluded if you actually use those, you know, um, uh, specialized terms, you know, without defining them or you kind of write a little bit uh, assuming certain kinds of reader knowledge. And so I think carving out that space as a writer is actually open to individual interpretation. And this is where it gets somewhat tricky for folks when they realize when they're working with me, I'm like, you can write in any style you want. You can think about which conventions of academic writing you want to drop because what a reader really, really wants, if you were to write a book for the reader and not what you want them to know, but what the reader actually needs, um, then, you know, you're going to tell stories. You're going to give lots of, you know, interesting things, right? And you're going to try to make everything come to life. And that's not typical academic writing style. So, you know, whenever I work with someone, I send them an in-depth questionnaire to fill out before we start. And one of the questions is, what are your strengths as a writer? And I would say at least 40 to 50% of people will write something like, I don't think I have any strengths as a writer, or I struggle with this question. And these are people who, many of whom have already written a book or co-authored a book, or they all have their PhDs. I mean, they've all done extensive writing. And so part of my role is to help them step into that, um, that role as like as expert, but also as like as a narrator, as someone that can introduce um, readers to new worlds, um, as like a tour guide. So one of the with one of my clients, we you know she struggled so much with 
with her voice and not giving herself license to express herself in the ways that she wants. And she writes in a very, very academic style, knowing that her primary audience is not going to be academic. And so we came up with the, um, you know, the, the metaphor of her as a tour guide in a museum where she's taking people to different rooms and explaining what's going on in each of the rooms in ways that the people right in front of her are going to be really engaged by. Um, and I think we can't talk about developing developing a distinct book writing style without talking about audience. And so one of the biggest things, you know, that I kind of emphasize as a coach is that we want to be not writing for our critics. We want to be writing for people who we already know are going to be supportive, interested, and they just want to know more about a topic they're not an expert in. And when people start thinking about, oh, I'm, my writing is actually a dialogue with someone who is not there to attack me or poke holes or um, critique, maybe I don't have to be on the defensive. I don't need to feel like I'm putting on armor every time I start to write, but I'm actually engaging in a generous conversation with somebody else who's there, really there for it, then it totally changes how they approach the writing. And so a lot of um, my work with my authors is to recognize that like, um, you know, only half of writing a book is sort of time management strategies and, you know, like word counts and, and having a schedule and all of that. The other half is really your mindset and the beliefs that you have about yourself and your writing and the beliefs that you want to have about yourself as a writer. And so we we always try to take people's greatest critiques of themselves and reframe them in ways that are um, inspiring and empowering. And those things become personal mantras that they can use to, to prime their minds before they even start writing. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, the piece, the blog post was about pointing out the, you know, the things that our brains do, like... Um, and also the, the ways we can personally intervene in a very habituated set of thoughts about ourselves and our writing that could be blocking us um, and potentially start to reshape them, see them for what they are, which is some legacies from the past. Recognize we can always start again. Every day is an opportunity to start again, not start over, but just start again. Um, and to give ourselves grace and compassion and to really see this as a process where, you know, the process has a lot to teach you if you're open and curious, um, but it's really hard to learn from it if you're feeling, you know, your cortisol levels are through the roof and you're so stressed out and you're not getting enough sleep and all of those things. So all of this links back to writing and, you know, sort of our, our comfort level with seeing ourselves as writers. It sounds like part of this work of letting go of the trauma of grad school is letting go of the idea of who the reader is. The reader used to be someone who was grading it. And now we're invited to imagine who our ideal reader would be. Who did we really want to receive this work? And imagining them hungry for it or generously taking it from us. Yes, let me read it. I want to know what you wrote about this. Yeah, it is, it is a total like reconfiguration 
right, of um, motivations um, and then approach. And so it's one of the things that I didn't consider that much when I was writing the first book. And now I see it as critical to being able to write a book at all um, with any sense of like confidence or ease or comfort, right? So I think, you know, I always walk people through the process of envisioning their ideal reader. And rather than seeing this as like a general group, like, oh, third year undergrads in the particular class, I ask them to choose a specific person. Like who's one person that like you would be so excited if they pick this up and read it and they would be excited to read it too. And let's talk about all the reasons why this is the person that stands out for you. So for some people, it's their mom or their grandma. So that would really dictate the, their word choices, right? Um, for other folks, it is it is a student maybe that they've had in the past, um, but but again, right? These are non-experts. And so I think um, I always try to tell people that like writing for a specific reader is this like, it feels like you're sort of excluding others in the process, but it's actually very inclusive because it shows your point of view, right? When you are garnering everything to the needs um, of someone who's not, um, doesn't have a PhD in this. Right. And so, and it also helps you really sort of hone a kind of distinct voice when you're talking to someone as opposed to talking at them. So, I, you know, have people think about the differences between, um, you know, teach, like we've all, we've all taken classes where the instructor just lectured at you for an hour and it's impossible to stay engaged. It's so boring. Right. Versus like, lobbying questions into the audience, getting to know you as people, like raising um, points that would be of relevance to to you as an audience member, as a learner. Same with writing a book. And so, I mean, there's tons of scholarly books that are aimed for a very narrow scholarly audience, but I think even those could be wider in their reach if they were to... um, choose a, an ideal reader that's not, a, that's not another expert. As you were speaking, I was thinking about how so many of us wrote a book because, or did our research uh, because there wasn't anything on it. And thinking about when you take it from dissertation to book, writing it in such a way that it could go back to that community and they would say, yes, this is ours. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe it doesn't even have to go that far to be like, this is ours, but it could be, this is a generous interpretation of what we showed you, right? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of the authors that I work with are so conscientious and one of their core values really is community. They did the research um, in like did very sort of longstanding ethnographic research Um, with various kinds of communities, and they want to take the work back to the community. Um, I think rarely does the work, like, I mean, it's still an academic piece. And so I think people still got to recognize that that's, you have your own personal motivations for getting it done on top of wanting this to be helping, um, or at the very least, like accurately representing a community. Um, but I do have an, uh, an author that I'm working on right now where 
everything she's writing, she's sharing with her um, interview subjects before, and she's getting their feedback as she's doing different drafts. Um, and I think that that is really an amazing approach. It's not one that most people take for obvious reasons, but um, I think for hers, it is really, really important for her to have the major stamp of approval before moving forward. But I do think it's a it's a spectrum. One of the other questions that you invite people to think about as they're in this process of revising from dissertation to book is to think back on the feedback that they received back when they were writing as a graduate student and to consider what are the comments that have really stayed with them. And Next to that, you say, in other words, what are the main negative thoughts you have about yourself as a writer? Mm -hmm. Are the comments that stay with us the most the ones that we got that were negative? For sure. (laughs) And I think that's just like a universal kind of human thing. Um, But I think anyone, anyone who's ever taught a class will tell you that like, if they taught a hundred students and 99 of them were positive, but one was like this harsh negative review, you're going to remember the negative one. And there's just something about, um, you know, feeling like, you know, you potentially failed or feeling like all the effort you put into it wasn't reflected or someone's not accepting what you had to offer. And I think that that's kind of just a, a universal kind of thing for people to feel. And then when you add on, um, the power differences and hierarchy that is present in academia. So when you're a grad student, like you're very disempowered, there's not a huge amount of agency that you have. And so, and, and you really do look up to your mentors as, um, as the people who are, you know, leading the way. And so if, if your mentors come back to you with harsh critiques, I think it can feel much, much worse. Um, because so much of your life is now invested in, um, in this project and everything takes on so much greater importance. You invite us to think about how the negative stories are not true and to write down all the evidence that we might have, that we are clear, persuasive, powerful writers. And you remind us that we would not have gotten this far if we weren't. Can we create a new internal dialogue? Yeah, you definitely can. And it's not easy. Um, As anyone who's tried to change their habits, any kind of habit, you'll find there's a lot of inner resistance that can come up. Um, It's also like old thought patterns have many years of, of being etched into our brains and new ones you have to like consciously repeat to yourself over and over and over again to, to carve out those new neural pathways and it's work. So, you know, I definitely don't think it's the easiest thing, but I definitely think it's possible and I see it happen all of the time, but it's a process, um, that occurs over months, um, sometimes over years and, and to recognize that we actually have the power to choose which thoughts we want to believe in any given moment. And so a lot of my authors come to me and they, they are in a sort of, they have a running loop of negative beliefs about themselves when they sit down to write, um, you know, just like things as harsh as like, you're, you're a terrible writer. Like, why are you even, 
an academic, like you'll never get a book done. Um, you're not worthy of your position. I mean, our, our minds can tell us some of the, the worst things. And, and then I, I ask people to pause and consider, you know, if you consider this thought as a train that's moving, um, and you have the choice to jump on that train and you know exactly where it's going to go. Um, it's going to, you're going to spiral. It's going to make writing really hard and probably really unpleasant, but you can choose that if you want, or you can choose a different thought that makes you feel better. And we come up with various kinds of thoughts that feel true, um, just as true as the other ones, but they don't have the same, you know, hooks in them. They're not barbed, right? They're not meant to pull you down. They're meant to smooth out the way. And then unlike in any, any given moment, you can, you have the power to decide. And I think that is very freeing to a lot of folks to see that like, oh, I don't have to believe this thought just because it's in my brain, you know? And maybe that was not their thought ever to, to begin with. It may have been something their parents said to them a lot or something they picked up in grad school or, or, you know, in elementary school, you don't know. Right. But just, I think becoming aware of what's going on in our heads and, and recognizing how it's manifesting in our bodies and in, in what we produce or don't produce and how, you know, good that process feels or not. So I think a lot of the coaching is just recognizing like, you know, in every second there's, there's different options. And seeing that you have options can be very, um, very much of a relief to folks. In another piece that you wrote, you offer the option of making friends with that inner critic. Um, and you offer five tips for how to do that. One of them is to pause and consciously take three deep breaths. Another is to send gratitude to your inner critic for trying to motivate you and make you successful. Yeah. I love this idea that we can stop fighting with our inner critic and just make peace with perhaps it's been there so long. We, we may not ever usher it out the door, but we can try to understand why it might be part of our internal motivating system at this point. Absolutely. And what I like to tell people is like your inner critic or critics, usually plural, um, have done a lot of work to get you to where you are now. And we also all reach a point where we've outgrown their utility. So it's not, the point is not to let them go or try to, um, you know, try to make them disappear because they actually have some really useful functions sometimes, but it's when, you know, we allow these parts of ourselves to kind of take the wheel and drive our emotions and drive our feelings about ourselves and our work, um, where things can really go awry. And so when I say befriend your inner critic, it's not like I'm saying this inner critic who says this whole, says these horrible, terrible, critical things to you is your friend. It's more like recognizing that there's parts of you that are trying to do what they can to make you successful from their own perspective in ways that don't necessarily make sense to your conscious brain right now. Um, and that these parts of ourselves come out of childhood. They come out of um, our formative experiences. And they're, like I said, often very, very useful until they're not. 
And so the, the compassion piece is to recognize that, you know, this, this piece of me that doesn't want me to write this book, maybe it doesn't want me to write this book because it wants me to not take risks and not be attacked and not be, um, you know, not be in the public eye in ways that are, feel unsafe. Um, you, you can't really know until you kind of explore it more, but, um, but yeah, definitely just recognizing where like maybe all these negative thoughts are not coming necessarily from a negative place. You talk in the piece about how most of the people that you work with at workshops or in individual coaching used to like writing. They can remember when they were a kid and they liked it. Um, and you talk on your website about uh, that you had reached a point where you you only rested when you were exhausted, when you were on the tenure track. And you talk about that feeling that we, I think all academics will know, which is that feeling of guilt when you aren't writing, uh, when you do rest, and that instead of that joy we had when we were kids where we couldn't wait to sit down and write something. We feel stuck a lot when we try to write. Um, do you want to address some of that in the time we have left? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like my, my thoughts around some of this have changed now that I'm fully out of the academy. Um, so when I was an academic, this, this grind mentality of like always work, like never rest, feel guilty about, you know, not working, et cetera, et cetera. I sort of pinned on the academy. Um, and now that I'm, I'm out, I just, I really see it as part of just being part of the capitalist system. <laughs> um, but that said, I think it's, it takes a very specific kind of form in it, in academia because, there's so much perceived flexibility as well, right? So the idea that you get to set your own schedule, you get to study the things that you choose to study, um, you often get to teach things you want to teach, um, can kind of come at the cost of uh, any kind of work-life balance. And so people will take on so much extra stuff and their summers really are also a grind, right? They don't give themselves that space to fully recuperate because it's always about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, so, you know, I don't have like a, a real great individual solution for all of that. Um, I mean, if people are interested, I did a couple of recent podcast episodes on burnout and one of them is, is some individual sort of level steps you can take um, if you truly are burnt out and your workplace is not going to change. Um, but yeah, I feel like in general, there needs to kind of be a cultural shift towards recognizing that um, we are not meant to work all the time, that our brains need to shut off. There are seasons in a year and there should also be seasons in how we work. Um, you know, there's the book Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey that I recommend to folks. And it's really just a meditation on how, you know, even the act of taking naps and allowing ourselves to dream and this open kind of space and reconnecting with ourselves is not indulgence. It's a necessary part of community um, and feeling like we are connected to something beyond our egos and our own productivity. And so, I mean, that's something I, I, I try to bring um, 
to the coaching. I try to bring it to my life now. And it's also a conscious challenge every single day to really ask myself the question, how much can I allow myself to rest today? And, and it's interesting because I've heard people now talk about how, how even the word rest can feel a little triggering to folks. And maybe there's other, other words we can use instead, like recalibration or regeneration. Um, and so it's not so laden with like this either or black or white kind of work or rest, but that it's, we're all part of a kind of process that we need to be more attentive to attentive to our bodies, attentive to our, um, our mental health, attentive to our relationships, and that our work ideally works for your life and not the other way around. And I definitely feel like when I was an academic, my work, everything about my life revolved around my work like it was the sun. And I think reaching a point where that was not okay for me anymore was was the catalyst for a lot of the things that I'm doing now, but it's not easy. And I absolutely empathize with everyone because it's not of your own doing. It's systemic. We can think as scholars, whether we're scholars inside the academy or outside or adjacent to, or just lifelong learners who are passionate about discovering new things, we can think that it's so fact-based that there isn't a creative aspect, that we don't need that renewal that creative minds need. Um, but we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's hard to have a, a new idea or a new approach to your writing if you haven't let your mind rest. Absolutely. And your body. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I try to emphasize with my writers is that writing a book is a creative act. Academic writing is an act of creation. However you approach it, you're creating something from scratch. I mean, you feel like you're, you're not, but, um, but you are right. It's like you're, you're, you're creating, uh, using different kinds of materials and your skill set and knowledge to produce something that hasn't been produced before. And so leaning into creativity and the joy of just making something different and new and, um, yeah, just like, making something period. And I think that's where the joy comes in for a lot of folks. And that's also where it left was when people stopped seeing it as creative and started seeing it as imperative for their jobs and their livelihoods. And there's some middle ground to be had between them. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I mean, maybe just like considering that, you know, just because you are Um, you have your PhD, it doesn't mean that you have all the skills you need to move forward yet, right? That like there's some amount of emotional reckoning that has to happen um, or that if it does happen, it's probably going to facilitate a much quicker transition, quicker and hopefully more satisfying transition into the next stage of your career. Um, It's also that like people don't talk a lot about the emotional aspects of just moving forward in a career like this. It's not just about moving from stage to stage. It's like you're growing as a person um, and you, you may need help and you may, you definitely need to need support and you need community as well. And it's not just something that happens um, in a vacuum right? So like writing a book 
it's actually not something that happens just by yourself, even though it's sole authored. So the more you can reach out, the more help you can get, the more external accountability you have, as well as the more you can sort of fan those internal flames of motivation and inspiration. Like it's this process. And so if, if anything, it's, it's really kind of like taking something like book writing and recognizing that um, it's actually about the process rather than the product. And that the more you can allow yourself to feel successful along the way, the more likely you are to achieve that, that huge goal of yours. But that external sort of those, those carrots that are like dangling in front of us, that's not enough, right? You need to find that right balance between that internal inspiration and those external motivators. But if you can find those and get enough support along the way, I think you know, that's how people achieve huge goals and didn't feel like they sacrificed from other pieces of their life to get there. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Leslie Wong, and taking us through the often unacknowledged emotional journey that accompanies turning your dissertation into a book. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you are listening to The Academic Life here on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.